0: Hi everyone and welcome to this month's podcast Um I'm honored to have with me Tim Fletcher who's the chair of uh, CDH, the entire group or the entire law firm, correct? Correct. Um, and Tim is in Nairobi this month and so we thought there it would be a perfect opportunity for us to speak to him and get to know him, um, understand where CDH is going and get a bit of background about him himself. So Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you in Nairobi and great to meet you too. Um, I want to start off with, why did you want to go into law, what was the motivation, where did you see an example of a lawyer that you thought, this is something I want to do?
1: I didn't actually want to go into law, I wanted to be a journalist. (laughs) Okay. But in South Africa in the 80s, journalism was a a dodgy profession to go into, (laughs) Um, and so the next best thing appeared to be law, and so I've just followed that path.
0: Okay, and then why did you think dispute resolution then, if, if you were thinking of law? Oh, that's a, it's, it's a longer
1: story. So I, I struggled with my board exams. And so at the end of my articles, I wasn't retained. And I didn't have a job for a while. I did a few things. I was a security guard, amongst other things. And eventually got a job at a, at an insurance litigation firm. And yeah. so my path was then set. And when I came back to the firm, it was in a litigation capacity. And then it morphed from there, because dispute resolution wasn't really a concept then either yeah it was um, litigation. it was litigation arbitration, yeah. and an alternative dispute resolution came yeah. a little bit later. yeah, so that's how it happened. Yeah. I think that if things if i if I'd studied a bit harder and hadn't met a A beautiful woman who became my wife uh, and been distracted, maybe I I would
0: have ended up being a commercial practitioner. I don't know. How many times did you do the board exams though? I did it three times. (laughs) Uh, How does that make you feel? I mean, it it takes a lot of determination, first of all, to do it the first time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you get the disappointment of the failure. And then, so three times is a lot to go through, isn't
1: it? It is a lot to go through. It was was a big challenge for me because I, I wasn't a great student at university, but I wasn't that bad. But it was the, the oral examinations that, that really killed me. I struggled with the oral examinations. Really? And, yeah. and
0: then into litigation, because that's a, you know, an oral, you, it requires like you know, presentation skills more than I guess a commercial practice. It does,
1: um, but it's, it's different to one-on-one with somebody interrogating you. Yeah.
0: So were you quite shy and reserved?
1: Uh, I have always been, I, I regard myself as a bit of an introvert. So people, people are amazed because you, you learn to push yourself and be outgoing, because yeah. you have to be. But I've always been a little bit shy and reserved. Yeah. And now Except you're, in my family. <laughs>
0: and yeah. Now you're the chair of CDH. So I guess you're d- demonstrating that you can start from anywhere and still get to where you're going.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, but if you ask me, did I ever plan this, this career path? Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, I'm as shocked as anybody is to... Where I've, where I've ended up.
0: And what do you think it takes in order for you to be where you are now? Is it determination? Is it hard work? What is, the you know, it, it, certainly may, it may not be intelligence, but other traits may be more important, correct?
1: I, I think it's a whole mixture of things. I, I mean, certainly you've, you've got to be intelligent to succeed at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, you've got to be determined. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I wasn't saying that you're not intelligent. No, 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 I know that. I know that. But I mean, in, intelligence is obviously a prerequisite. Oh, yeah. um, emotional intelligence, I think, is important. Um, but then also, I think that that you get presented with opportunities and it's all about the choices you make. Yeah. And yes, some, some of us get lucky, um, but it's also what you do with that luck, how you ride that luck. Hmm. And I do think that a lot of people have made, they complain about how, They've been unlucky in life, but in fact, what they've done is they've made made bad choices mm-hmm. and and you all of us make bad choices from time to time but but then you you live with those choices, yeah,
0: so I guess luck has been interpreted as uh, opportunity meeting preparation, right sure. so when you were sitting in in the security as a security guard in an insurance law firm. I guess it's an insurance practice, right? Well, no, I was I was
1: a, an attorney in the in the insurance oh, firm. Oh, so, but
0: the way that you got into it, let's go back to that then.
1: I well, I didn't I didn't have a job and, and I needed to pay for my rent and so, <laughs> uh, I I had a contact who was worked for Lodge Security and she offered me a position. So I was briefly a security guard. I, I put too much emphasis on that, <laughs> and I then became her administrative assistant. And then, at the same time, I was interviewing at law firms, oh, okay. and then so, I got a job yeah. at, a, at an insurance law
0: firm. And I guess that they, away you went. I asked Brent this question when he was on the podcast about mm-hmm. what it was like to be a practicing solicitor or practicing lawyer during um, apartheid South Africa, and how the difficulties were. What was your experience? Because it must have been vastly different to his. Uh,
1: no, Certainly. Um, I didn't really practice because I mean, as an as a, an attorney during apartheid. Because um, when I was still a candidate attorney, the, the, the release of Nelson Mandela was announced, and um, I mean, we had the elections in nineteen ninety four. By yeah. which stage I was a second year associate. Okay. Um, but my my legal experience um, in apartheid South Africa was different because um, all. White men had to register when you when you turned sixteen, you had to register for military service.
0: Oh, wow, okay. And
1: so I then, after university, I went to the South African Defence Force and I was a law officer um, in that context. So that was that was very different for me um being a lawyer in in that context.
0: Yeah, yeah, what was that experience like? it was It was an interesting experience. <laughs> uh, let's put it no
1: higher than that. I, there were parts of it I enjoyed. I, I enjoyed the structure of the military. I enjoyed the discipline, but yeah. I didn't enjoy the 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 racism and and the strong nationalism that you ex, you experienced. There and you were forced to to go along with. Yeah. So you know, in in the training, we were given, we were shown videos of of people in the townships killing each other to try and get us um, motivated to to. What I don't, I'm not entirely oh, wow. sure. Wow,
0: so it's a kind of like an indoctrination, it was an
1: indoctrination, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the, the permanent force, the, the, the professional soldiers, were extremely racist in their approach. Yeah, um, which was particularly difficult for me because I was in a unit that had our soldiers were all black, but the, the officers were all white. Wow, um, they all the, all the black soldiers were professional soldiers, um, now regarded as turncoats by the.
0: By, by the, I guess, the, the locals. By the locals, yeah. yeah. But, I mean,
1: at that stage, they were just keen for a job, and mm-hmm. it was a job.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess th- there has been a lot of change in South Africa in that regard, from the time that you were young to the time that you, you're, you know, now. Um, how do you feel about that change or challenge?
1: Well, the change has been massive. I mean, if, you, if, if I go back to when I was growing up, um, if you went to the post office, there was an entrance for black people and there was an entrance for white people. Yeah. The post office closest to my house had identical facilities. But if you went to the little shop around the corner, white people were allowed inside the shop and black people had to be served at a little serving hatch around the side. Yeah. And for me, at that stage, that was, that was kind of normal. It was life. I mean, my parents made it clear to me that that wasn't, wasn't normal. Um, and if I look back on it, I mean, it's, it's absolutely appalling what what went on. Um, it does trouble me that having grown up in that environment, having grown up in an all-white school and having been to a largely white university, uh, that that must have affected me in some way. It must, I mean, I must have developed in a way that's different to how my children develop. I mean, my children don't really see race. It's, it's not an issue for them. Yeah. I mean, you do experience issues of racism, um, but for them it's it's not the same as, as, as it was for me.
0: Yeah. I guess for you it's particularly important because in a dispute resolution or litigation practice, what you're facing is um, all kinds of people and from all walks of life in a, a setting where they may be incarcerated. And therefore, it's more important that you... Are sensitive towards those things, so how was it when you were first entering into practice, and what challenges did you encounter in that regard? Uh,
1: yeah I, I mean at the moment, my practice is very commercial commercial yeah so my my experience of dealing with people in a in a criminal setting is is limited now. I did do some criminal work back in the day, and i've I've acted for all kinds of people, mm. all races, all genders um and yeah I, I don't think that that my my upbringing changed the way that that i dealt with those people yeah. i've always had a strong moral code i grew up in a in a religious in a in a in an environment that had faith um and spirituality and so i've always tried to regard people no matter who they are as people um it's in fact, it's somebody. It's something that that um, one of the speakers at our recent directors' conference spoke about, is that it, how people treat you is about them and not about you. And I've always tried to remember that, so that if somebody does come with with ideas that that are anathema to yeah. me, mm-hmm. I I kind of convince myself that it is about them and it's not about me.
0: Yeah, maybe it's something that all of us can take. Um, to heart so that we can you know, when we're facing challenging situations we can, we can interpret it that way Sure, easier. look it's,
1: it's, it's very easy and glib for me to say it <laughs> yeah. here yeah. but when you're actually faced with it mm-hmm. um, it's, it's quite difficult to deal with and it's also quite easy and glib for me to say as a white person because I think life as a white person and as a male person is a hell of a lot easier than for, for somebody of a different race group and particularly somebody who's female
0: Yeah. But I think the interesting part is that there has been such an evolution and change for South Africa, something that probably very few of us have experienced in our lifetimes, Mm. if certainly not for for me, because I didn't grow up in in that kind of environment. So I didn't understand it. But for you as a white male, recognizing that you have had this privilege, and I think a lot of people talk about that uh, privilege. How do you feel about that? Do you feel persecuted?
1: No, I certainly don't feel persecuted. <laughs> I think I think that I've been extremely fortunate. I, 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 I do I you have...
0: rec- Do you recognize that privilege, though? Oh, absolutely. Oh, and, mm-hmm. and I have to
1: recognize it because my children often tell me, <laughs> "Sure, your dad, your white privileges is, th- is showing." <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah. No, absolutely, I recognize that. I mean, I I grew up in an environment where I was privileged above anybody else, and. I can give you an example of it. Yeah, yeah, sure. When I was in the army, a couple of friends that I'd made uh, and I went across to Swaziland. And when we got to the border on the South African side, there were three people in the white queue. There was a long black Mm -hmm. queue Mm -hmm. and we went straight through. When we came back the other way, we were forced to join the queue. (laughs) And we were then number 58 in the queue or whatever it was. mm -hmm. And you then realize w- what a difference it was for being a white person growing up in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were we were extremely privileged. Privilege doesn't sound right, though, because it sounds like it's kind of a normal term. Yeah. And it wasn't. It wasn't normal. It was completely abnormal.
0: Yeah, to to everyone else, I guess.
1: Well, to me as well, because mm-hmm. although it was, it, it's nice being being able to be number three in the queue rather than having to stand with everybody else, yeah. you mm-hmm. recognize that, that you're getting that privilege just because of the, the color of your
0: skin, which is mm-hmm. it's absurd. And do you think that South Africa's the strides that it's made to improve the, the, you know, or to balance the inequality that has been there, is have, they, have you guys done enough? Do you think you should do more? What are we doing as a law firm to make sure that we are uh, you know, bridging that gap?
1: We certainly haven't done enough. I mean, if you just look at i mean if you, I'm, I'm most familiar with the dispute resolution department. Yeah. if you look at the dispute resolution department, the majority of the partners are I'm not sure if the majority the majority is still white, and the majority the vast majority are male. We've got a long way to go. In the time that I've been practice head, we've been working, i've I've made a conscious effort to grow the number of females amongst the associates. Yeah. and to and to grow the number of black people amongst the associates so if you look at our senior associate cohort now it is 100 percent black and it's something like 78 percent female yeah and from those people we are now growing into the partnership so just in the last few years we've appointed several females and several black people yeah through to the through to the partnership in south africa we've also got it's it's weird that you would think that once We'd achieve democracy. We would move away from race classification, but we are so focused on race classification. Yeah. We we distinguish between people who are African black, or coloured, or Indian, uh, and and so when we look at at how we've developed as a as a department, yeah, again talk, just talking about the dispute resolution department, uh, we focus on who are African black. So it's important for us to bring through african black people into the partnership uh, and and transformation some people regard it as as a, a a road to a destination yeah there is no destination it's going to be a constant in our lives and it yeah. should be a constant in our lives forever because you can if if you don't pay attention to it you could suddenly find that you've slipped and now suddenly we are we're out of sync with what, with what society is. Yeah. We've, I mean, if we end up in a situation where 80% of our partners are female, then we're out of sync.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we, need, we need to keep, keep in touch with, with what the society outside looks like, and our law firm should reflect that society. Yeah. And so if, if, you, if you just look at the numbers, we've got a very, very long way to go. We've come a long way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think our first partner, yes, our first partner was Luce, Lucia Erasmus, female partner, sorry, yeah. was Lucia Erasmus, mm-hmm. and she was appointed in 1990 when I was a candidate attorney. Our first black partner was Peter Bagaji, who's still with us, um, and that was quite a few years later. Um, so from, from there, we've come a long, long way. Mm. but we've still got a long, long way to go and we cannot be complacent.
0: But I, I, this is a difficult conversation to have, it's and it's a sensitive one to have, so I really thank you for being mm. so candid and, and you know honest about it. Um, how do you see your role as a chair in that transformation um, angle? What is your role as a chair, actually?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because <laughs> when I was asked to become the chair, obviously the first place I looked was the regulations, and the regulations say that it gives me a few jobs, like I chair the partners' meeting, um, and I'm an ex officio member of of the executive committee, um, but it doesn't actually tell tell you what the substance of the role is. Yeah, and so to some extent you've got to craft that yourself, and I I regard the substance of my role mostly as pastoral care, so it is looking after the people. Okay, um, and that has been quite a a challenge to keep. To keep energized, because when you 're dealing with people and you 're dealing with people' issues, it requires a lot of emotional energy, yeah um, a, a lot of emotional intelligence, um, and most of the time I think i 've done an okay job every now and again my my Irish temper gets gets <laughs> the better of me, yeah, um, but yeah as i say it 's a job that that i 'm learning as I go along, so yeah. mm-hmm. The one thing that I, that I do realize is that if I come to Nairobi, for example, I need to meet as many people as possible. Um, a, a big challenge for me is remembering people's names. Yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. particularly coming out of COVID, I suddenly met a whole cohort in Johannesburg of, of candidate attorneys that I'd never met before. In fact, yeah. some of my partners I'd never met before. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's just about um looking after the people and making sure as far as possible that the, that the people are happy
0: i mean that that is a challenge itself i think for me when when i look at your role because you are so seminal in in the meetings and you know how we interact as partners i think that's where we've interacted the most yeah. i can see that you you know you're taking a, a leadership type role and so for anyone who's a young partner or young directors um what advice would you give them as to Mapping out your career. I know you're saying you didn't have a structure, or what steps you can take to to elevate yourself higher than just um, the academic work that we we do, or at least the, the you know the transactional work.
1: Um, one one of the 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 things that I say to candidate attorneys, in fact, I've pinched this from a, a, an Australian comedian called Tim Minchin who.
0: Oh, I like that guy. He yeah. plays the piano, right? He plays the piano. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he's got long hair, and often yeah. he's
1: often appears on stage in bare feet. But yeah. uh, he he did a speech to the University of Western Australia, and it's and it's a clip worth watching on on YouTube. He says that you should focus on what's directly in front of you and, and work hard at what's directly in front of you. Um, be micro ambitious, I think, is what he says. Micro ambitious. I like that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and he says that develop your peripheral vision because because the next shiny thing in your career might not be directly in front of you. Mm-hmm. It might be out to the side. And, and that's, that's certainly how I've, I've worked. I've always been scared of having grandiose goals. I don't like, for example, having a bucket list. Okay. Because I don't want to die feeling like <laughs> I've only achieved three things on my bucket list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll go and do things that I fancy at the time. And so that's, that's how my career has developed. The opportunity to become practice head Um, presented itself because our then practice head Peter Conradi was talking about stepping down and I thought to myself well I think I could do an okay job at this and so I put my hand up and funnily enough it was Rishabhan Moodley who's now taking over from me as practice head and I who were the two candidates and Rishabhan then decided that he would step back and that was about 10 years ago, and I've yeah. been practice head since then. And then the, exactly the same with chairperson. I never, ever dreamed of being chairperson, didn't, in fact, didn't want to be chairperson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somebody said to me, would you be prepared to accept a nomination? Yeah. And I thought about it, spoke to some people, and again, thought I could do an okay job. Yeah. And so put my hand up.
0: But I think even in that, you're not recognizing, like, there's a specific skill that you must bring so that people recognize your leadership ability. Um, what do you, is it putting your hand up? Is it being the first person to talk? Is it, is it being forthright in your opinions? Is it understanding people and being emotionally intelligent? What do you think um, has steered you in that, um, you know, that leadership direction?
1: I think emotional intelligence is one of the things. Yeah. Um, but I suppose that where my strength is that, is that I'm a doer. Yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not that much of a talker. Uh, so if if you ever attend one of the meetings that I chair, I I don't spend a lot of time talking,
0: pontificating, pontificating. <laughs> um, I
1: I want to get on to the to what the action points are. And let's get this thing done. Let's get yeah. this, which sometimes is a strength, sometimes it's a weakness. Uh, when we when we're involved in strategic discussions, these broad blue sky strategic discussions, I don't think I'm as effective. I think I'm much more effective if you give me. A job to do there's a yeah. there's a to-do list and, and we go and do it
0: yeah um let's talk a bit about your career then just as a, a dispute resolution lawyer so anyone who's looking to go into dispute resolution and understanding what it is that it takes mm. to be at the the highest level that you can be um when you've had a challenging case or a, you know a set of facts that are you know difficult to unscramble. How, how have you dealt with that? What is the easiest way to, to get to grips with what, you're, what you have in front of you and then give advice to the client? What practical steps can you give someone who's looking at dispute resolution in that way?
1: Well, the challenge with dispute resolution, and particularly when you're given challenging facts, yeah. is that you need time. And so for me, it's, it's an approach with the client so that, so that even a client who is demanding an immediate response you are able to say to them, just give me some time and persuade them that the time is required. Yeah. In fact, it takes me back to an, an interesting story when Adil Patel was at a conference, he was speaking at a conference in London, and I got a message from him to say that his client was in grave difficulty. This was a trading company, and the sheriff was there to attach their trading platform. Yeah. And without their trading platform, they would, they would lose massive amounts of money. And so he was saying to me, bring an urgent application to court, screaming at me down the phone. And I said, well, let me go and get the file and I'll go and read the file. And he kept phoning me and sending me messages. And eventually I turned my phone off just so that I could read the file and work out what was going on. And then because my phone was off, he was sending a secretary to me to say, bring the urgent application, bring the urgent application. Yeah. And I eventually managed to get that 15 minutes just to be able to sit down and work out what the best thing to do was. And in that space, having created that space, I was able to realize that what had happened was a judgment had been granted against the client. And all we needed to do was get a notice of appeal out because that would immediately stay the operation of the judgment. Amazing, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we we banged out a, a notice of appeal. I phoned the attorneys on the other side who said that they were not going to stop removing until they'd received the notice of appeal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I said to them that they're speaking to me, they're speaking to Cliff Decker Hoffmeyer. They know that when I say that there's a notice of appeal coming, that there is. And if they if they do damage to my client because they're not prepared to stop the sheriff now, then they better be calling up their professional indemnity insurer <laughs> and they agreed to stop. Mm-hmm. And it, it was all done and dusted in about a half an hour. Whereas if I had simply rushed off and done what audio was telling me to do and uh, he was i mean it was it was a knee-jerk from his side sitting in a conference in london he didn't have time to think about it either but you've actually got to find that that time because yeah. if i'd rushed off to do an urgent application we would probably have got our order by four o'clock that afternoon mm, yeah. by which time the trading platform would have been removed and the clients would have suffered
0: the loss i mean that's an amazing example and Often clients put you on, not, not only audio but clients will put you you're under right. enormous I'm, I'm pressure. Not, I'm not criticizing audio. No, no, no,
1: no. It's just an example. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's just a client will put you under pressure and you have Absolutely. to answer immediately. And you feel as if you're rushed off your feet. So I think taking the time is, is very important. Um, then balancing work and life, which I think a lot of women find challenging because they are the ones who are you know predominantly doing the, the, the life part yes. um, and taking off the children. How have you managed? Have you had to manage? Have you made you know, concerted efforts to make sure that you are balancing your, your work and life and has that, how has that been for you?
1: I have, I have made concerted efforts. I mean, it, it's, it's been easier for me because my wife is an occupational therapist who, who works at a school, has always worked at a school, and so she's been able to manage her time around the needs of our children. Um, so, so it has been easier for me but what I have done is, as far as possible, I've made sure that I was home by supper time, so seven o'clock would be an absolute cut-off for me, yeah. so that we could have dinner as a family around the table and share the stories of the day. Uh, and, and I think that, that just that simple rule in our family has worked very well. Yeah I've managed to grow up three reasonably well-adjusted sons <laughs> um, who are all now on, off on their own careers. And I suppose that there are, other, there are some other rules that you put in place. I've always watched um, particularly Jewish lawyers who will, who will refuse to work on a Saturday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they're perfectly happy to work on a Sunday. And if, if at all possible, I don't, I don't want to work external work on a Saturday or a Sunday.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: That's, that's my time um, and my family's time. I, I do... I do work over the weekend, um, but it's generally when, when my wife's off riding her horses or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it it's not something that just happens, and this career is something that can consume you if you're not careful. Yeah. So I do think that putting some kind of limits in place are important.
0: Yeah, I think I, I find that extremely difficult. I think I just do it around the clock, um, and I need to... To, to find uh, a way to make sure that I have breaks but the seven o'clock one I had Barack Obama also used to do that He used to stop work and then come home and have from um, dinner with uh, with his family okay um, which is I think his way of you know relaxing from the White House oh well,
1: thank you for letting me know that because he's one of my heroes oh great yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah yeah he did um and also when you were deciding on your career and your practice does what is the difference People don't understand, like, maybe big law versus a smaller practice versus a bespoke practice. Um, Does it make a difference, your approach to your career in that way? And what concerted decisions did you make? Did you think, I'm going into a big law firm, it's international, it has all of these um, fancy, you know, bells and whistles, as opposed to just staying in an insurance practice where you would be focused on specific work and not necessarily have to deal with, um, you know, work that's outside of South Africa necessarily?
1: It, it was never as thought through as that. <laughs> so when I was in the army and I was looking to at which firms I would go to for articles, um, I, I, I looked at, at the big firms. So I approached seven or eight of the big yeah. firms mm-hmm. um, and I got some interviews. But one of the guys who was in, in my platoon, uh, his brother was at Cliff Decker and Todd, and he said to me, you should apply at that firm because my brother's very happy there. Mm-hmm. And I applied there and that was the place that first offered me the job. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I liked the idea of the place and so I went. And it had nothing to do, it wasn't an international firm at that stage, mm-hmm. it was a Johannesburg law firm. It didn't have a Cape Town branch and I think there were 14 partners Yeah, in the law firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the idea of an international law firm was was still quite a long way away at that stage Mm
0: -hmm. but i think what you've seen is the growth of the firm and gone along with that and for anyone who's looking to start their career or thinking of what type of practice what would you say what would you say that like the changes that you've seen that may have an effect on what decisions you can make as to where you want to practice
1: yeah it it seems It seems right now to go for an international law firm and to go for a big law firm, because you've got all sorts of opportunities. But the opportunities that I had working at that small insurance firm was that I appeared in court, I did trials regularly, mm-hmm. so I was doing a trial probably once once a week, once every two weeks, uh, and that exposure was huge for me in yeah. my development. Mm-hmm. We don't have that exposure in large law firms because the kind of matters you deal with, you can't send a, a junior associate off to court to, to run the matter. It's just, yeah, and yeah. in fact, some of the matters are so big and you, you can't find the time to prepare mm. for those matters. So generally we use advocates to do that work. So I think that the, the kind of exposure you will get is completely different. Uh, but having said that, in a in a small law firm, it's the experience that trains you. In a large law firm, the training is provided for you. So it's a much more structured environment than a small law firm. But I, but I think you, you can get to the same place uh, at, at both. The one challenge though, is that if you want to get ahead in a big law firm, you really need to start at the bottom and work your way up. Because if you are not at a big yeah. law firm, it's quite difficult. To move into a big law firm, even even uh, as a lateral hire, yeah, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. it's hard.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think, I guess, maybe in your time, it was perhaps easier to make those decisions, or at least the pool was smaller. And now there's so much. or the seemingly so much that you can choose from, so many law firms that you can choose from, um, that is more difficult for junior lawyers to make a decision as to where to be placed. Oh, absolutely. I think,
1: I think that, that on the plus side for junior lawyers, there's a lot more opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another story that I often tell is that um, in 1994, our then senior partner, Chris Ewing, came to my office. I was in a branch office. And he told me that some of my colleagues were going to be made partners and I wasn't (laughs) and I was very upset and I went into office and slammed the door and sat there and contemplated life and the first thing I did after after I got a hold of myself was I put my CV together and sent it out to the market and it's quite funny that I'm still waiting for somebody to phone me back (laughs) but if I look at at our juniors now um, if you send your CV out and this is certainly the case in South Africa. I don't know if I, I assume it's similar in Kenya. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you send your CV out, you're going to get an offer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you want to move, mm-hmm. you will you will be offered something, and it'll probably be it might not be a better place, but it it will probably be a bit more money. Yeah. Um. And you and you can move. Yeah. Um. And that's the that's the, the advantage for juniors now. But it's also a challenge because knowing whether the move is the right thing. Yeah. And one of the things that that is. Become apparent to me over over the years is that when people leave, um, to use a bit of an analogy, I say that they pack their suitcase with, with the stuff that they think they want to take with them, yeah. And they they think that they're leaving behind all of the stuff that they don't like, yeah. And then they arrive at their new law firm, and lo and behold, a lot of the stuff that they don't like is in fact indelibly attached to them, it's yeah, yeah. Part of them, <laughs> yeah. and and they think that they're leaving it behind because. They're at a horrible law firm, but in fact they arrive at the new one, and it's <laughs> it's largely the same.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's very good. Um, in terms of it, exactly that, how do we then make sure that we're re- looking to the future, retaining the best talent and attracting the best talent? What do you think we need to do in order to do that? Because you know, the great recession means that people leave at the drop of a hat yeah. don't necessarily want to be in practice don't necessarily want to work the long hours that i'm sure you did when you were um you know a junior lawyer and that i've done um how do we do that
1: well there's all sorts of facets to that i mean it starts with i suppose it starts with the reputation of the firm that yeah. you, that, that reputation starts attracting the right talent but we get so many cvs in that the first thing is how do you decide which people are going to be right yeah um and we we get it largely right every year but but it, there's always a few lemons in the in the packet
0: in the orchard isn't it yeah absolutely
1: <laughs> um and and there, there may be people also who get the 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 sequence of their rotations isn't right so they yeah. they are too immature in their in their. Their, their life cycle as a candidate attorney or as a pupil uh, when when they get an opportunity and they can't make the most of it. Yeah. Uh, but from our side, it's then select- selecting as best as we can, yeah looking out for the red flags, because if there's a red flag in somebody's history, we shouldn't be hiring them. We should be trying to hire the best candidates. Yeah. And by the best candidates, I, I don't mean necessarily the, best, the people with the best results, because... We know over many years that people with great university or school results don't necessarily make, make the, the best, best lawyers. lawyers.
0: Yeah, I also like the fact that you said that it doesn't have to come. It doesn't have to be the best university. It could be a mediocre university with good results. Or well, absolutely, you know, I've
1: I've seen candidates come out of the best universities and they're terrible. Yeah. Um. But you also get people who have been to a, a less than great university, but who are excellent candidates. And it reminds me of a of a a video I was watching, it was an interview on the BBC, and somebody was asking a guy who was in his mid-50s yeah. where he went to university, and he said, it's irrelevant, I went to the University of Life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As they probed a bit further, it turned out he went to both Harvard and Oxford. But as he said, it's irrelevant.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we are a young office, the Kangan office is a young office. Yeah. Um, what do you think that we can do you know, to up our game from where we are now what what advice would you give us as um partners in this office into as to developing the office offering
1: well i suppose that there are two things the the one is in the local office is making sure that you create a nurturing environment an environment where where the juniors feel like they have found a home and they want to stay and they can learn and yeah. they're getting all the right experiences at the same time sticking to the the requirements of an of an excellent practice yeah um but the advantage that you have over local kenyan law firms is that you're part of a bigger group yeah and and for anybody who joins a large law firm it's pointless if you're going to join a large law firm and behave as if you're a a silo you the purpose of being in a large law firm is to take advantage of all of the facilities that are there yeah so You've got to take advantage of the business development people the marketing people the the finance people the the systems the 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 knowledge the training um and and make sure that that all works for you and we see that there are there are practice areas that make better or worse use of those things, and those practice areas succeed or don't succeed depending on on the approach that they take
0: yeah yeah. Well, let's see how it goes. It's going well so far, so you know, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and things I'm, are going well, so we're happy. Yeah, We just need to make sure that we keep pushing, and I think part of it is strategizing together with our colleagues in, in South Africa, and that has been great, a great experience for me personally to see how big law thinks, uh, and have the opportunity to participate in that. Anyway, we have final set of questions. These are quite quick-fire questions. Okay. No thinking involved, just answer. Um, the first thing that comes into your head, hopefully it's clean okay. <laughs> um, favorite color blue favorite food uh, pizza what type of pizza uh,
1: it's a mince with chili on it
0: Oh, okay all right um, favorite country to visit I don't know it, it was the best th- one that came into your head
1: the UK but it's but I don't think so because I've just been to
0: France and thoroughly enjoyed that okay that, that's what I was coming to favorite holiday.
1: My favourite holidays. Holiday I've just had: walking in Brittany, and then we we took a boat trip up the Seine River.
0: Oh, lovely! With your with your family. With my family. Okay. Yeah. Favorite partner in the firm. Uh,
1: David Penock.
0: Oh, that was I I didn't expect you to answer that. <laughs>
1: Why, David? Oh, he's he's always positive, and he's always got a, a he's got a, a good outlook on life. I know Ardiel will be upset, but <laughs> Ardiel's my second favourite. Well,
0: I'm sitting here too. <laughs> I haven't
1: known you that long. <laughs> That's true, actually. David was my candidate attorney, so oh, nice. we had a lot of fun when he was my candidate attorney.
0: Favourite sports? Rugby. Which team?
1: Uh, Highfelt Lions.
0: Who is that? In Johannesburg. They're, oh, I see. The local Johannesburg team. Okay. All right. We'll keep that for Shem and you to have a discussion. Okay. All right. Thank you, Tim. Um, it's been a great experience having you on the podcast. Thank you for all your insights and thank you for making the time. You're
2: very welcome.
0: All right, everyone, see you next month.